So I am David Cosio. I am a board-certified clinical health psychologist, and I'm here to talk about the death of Caesar, psychological stages of grief, and chronic pain. A little bit about myself. So I am the psychologist in our outpatient uh, uh, multidisciplinary pain clinic at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center. I am also the psychologist in their 12-week car for credited interdisciplinary program. That having been said, I am not here on behalf of the VA. I am not speaking on behalf of the VA. I am here as a psychologist who has worked in the field for the last 10 years, just trying to impart maybe a little bit of wisdom that I've learned in the last 10 years working in this population. Now there's a couple of things that we need to accomplish this morning. We are going to learn the limitations that people who suffer from chronic pain face. We're gonna identify how to understand grief. We're gonna discuss how to look for signs and complete a psychological assessment. And then we're going to review some interventions for grief. Now, some of you may be wondering, why the death of Caesar? Why is that the name of the, the talk? Well, I always know that the talks that have the most fancy <laughs> titles get the most people, right? I also wanted it to be related to Vegas, and we have Caesar's Palace next door, so it had to be Caesar. Uh, but the story of Caesar's death actually highlights the three things that I want to go over this morning. I want to talk about what is grief. I want to talk about how, we, how grief is presented, how we display it. And then finally, I want to talk about what we do with it. Um, and we can learn a lot about that from the death of Caesar. So it was the Ides of March, and the conspirators were waiting for Caesar in the theater. They were waiting for him, and when he showed up, they started to attack him viciously, stabbing him to death. And he fell down to the ground, and he covered himself with the toga, and then he passed away. Right. So there are three things that are for sure in human life. The first thing is that we're going to live, the second thing is that we're going to die. And I thought the third was taxes. But it's actually grief. We all are going to experience grief at some point in our life. Now, despite being something that we all will experience at some point, there's not a lot of literature or a lot of discussion about grief and loss. In fact, when I went to go do this presentation, I went into the research, there isn't very much when it comes to grief and pain. However, it's important to talk about these topics because the symptoms of grief may be misconstrued or may be understood as being part of the chronic pain experience. Now, when we lose someone or something that is very important to us, that's dear to our heart, oftentimes we describe that experience as losing a part of ourselves, right? And that's why pain and grief are so similar, is because the loss is similar. Now, patients who have chronic pain are going to experience several different types of losses. They're going to lose the inability to engage in meaningful activities and meaningful relationships, maybe even with themselves. You know, they lose their abilities and their roles. They may have employment issues and financial losses. That's the part that we usually hear from our patients, right? I can't go back to work. I can't pay my bills. You know, the bills are piling up. I'm really stressed out about it. But what we don't hear them talk about and where we need to kind of look a little bit more closely is in their loss of identity and the loss of hope. 
you know, not being understood by the people that are around them. Sometimes they, even the family that is around the patient doesn't understand what the patient is going through. And then feeling as though they've changed as a person. There's a lot of people who suffer from chronic pain who will say, I'm not the same person I was before this happened to me. Uh, and in turn, these losses changes the way the person views the world, right? Oftentimes when people have depression, we talk about them wearing glasses that are sun blue sunglasses, right? And how we try to work them towards a degree in which they're seeing the world in more rosy glasses, right? So let's go back to Caesar. So following the assassination, it was chaos. No one had really planned what was going to happen with the power, uh, 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 the position of power. And so it created a vacuum. And what happened then is that the entire city kind of went on shutdown. Everybody went quiet. It was confusing. And the streets were empty. So what is normal grieving? Well, here's the thing. There is no normal grieving, right? Grieving is a self, it is a personal experience. However, what we know is that it is normal for people who are going through grief or who have chronic pain to also have extreme reactions and extreme emotions related to their losses. And so all of us are familiar with the Kubler-Ross model. Everybody familiar? Yeah? What are the five stages that we learned? There's five stages of grief. They are denial. It's on the board. Denial, <laughs> anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, right? Now, this is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. This is her. And she believed that we are solely responsible for our choices, and we have to accept the consequences of every deed, word, and thought throughout our lifetime. Now, it wasn't only Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who worked on this model, but it was Osler Kessler. And they've updated uh, this model because there were a lot of criticisms about the model. The first criticism is that people assumed that this process occurred over months, maybe even weeks or years. That's not the case. This could happen within minutes, within hours. You know, the model that I think makes the most sense for me when I'm talking to patients is the model that's used by hospice, the foundation of America. They describe it as being a roller coaster. You know, when you're on a roller coaster, you know, you're going up, right? Right, you get up and then it goes down, but then it could go left and then it could go right and it could go down again and it could go up again. So the same thing goes with the model. The model is not linear. You can go from one, one stage to the next stage and then jump back two stages beforehand, right? And so this is more of an accurate representation of what happens with grief. Now, this is the model that we learned when we were in school, right? It kind of progressed from one stage to the other, and now we know that this is not a really accurate representation. This model on the right is a better way of looking at it, right? We can transition from denial to acceptance to anger to bargaining and to depression. Now, when the stages first came out, the way that we understood it is that the first stage was denial. Why is that the first stage? Is because that is a coping strategy. That is how we protect ourselves when we are taken off guard with a loss, right? Now, what happens is, is when we're in that situation, we repress all the other extreme emotions that come with the grief. And the one that squeaks by is anger. And the reason that's the one that squeaks by is because we have more practice or maybe we feel a little bit more comfortable with that experience. But it is not the only emotion that can come along. 
There's also guilt. You may have guilt related to the loss. This leads to bargaining, right? When we are in the bargaining stage, what we are doing is we're trying to go to the past, get things the way that they were before, before the loss, right? And then this eventually leads us to come to the present. And when we are in the present, we are feeling depressed, depression. Depression is probably the most important stage. And then what we strive for, the thing that we are looking for is acceptance. Now, when I talk about acceptance throughout you know, the country, I always get a, a, a range of reactions because when people hear the word acceptance, what they think that I'm saying is that they needlessly have to suffer. That's not what I'm saying. Or that they have to give up all hope or feel defeated. Or they have to accept someone else's version of their condition. Or they have to not care. Now, acceptance is not that. What acceptance is is when people maintain hope for a better future while accepting their unpleasant reality. So the best example I can give you that really will drive this home is when a person is born without the gift of sight or without the gift of hearing. If that person does not adapt to the world around them, what are they supposed to do then? They're not going to crawl into a corner, right? They have to look forward. They have to adapt their world and make the best of what their reality is. And that is what we're trying to do with people who have chronic pain. Healthy acceptance means that they are mentally and emotionally getting to a point where they are accepting their reality. Um, And there's two factors that need to be coming in play in the grieving process. The one is, is that they have to adapt. And number two is that they have to relearn the world. All right, let's go back to Caesar. So on the day of the funeral, uh, there was a procession. Everybody was mourning. His body was laid to rest. And the funeral site was eventually made a a, a place of of worship or a place that people would visit to remember his uh, legacy. Now, what, do we, what is we providers, what can we do? The first thing that we can do is kind of be aware of these two things. You know, it wasn't until a couple of years of working in pain that I realized, wait a minute, I'm dealing with a lot of grief here, but we weren't calling it grief, right? Now, so one thing we have to be aware of is that pain and grief resemble one another. So there's a couple of things that we need to do. The first thing you need to do is ask your patient and acknowledge the losses that they are going through. Number two, you need to assess what their needs might be. And number three, you need to connect those patients with the resources to address those needs. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to acknowledge some losses. So the first thing is, is that in order to acknowledge the losses, you have to talk to the person, right? So we need to be talking to our patients. Now, not only after you have to be talking to the patients, you have to be talking to them about loss and grief. And that is kind of hard, right? That's hard in and of itself, but you have to be comfortable with those feelings. And once you are comfortable with those feelings, then you'll be able to be strong enough to deal with the feelings of another person who's going through those same experiences. However, we as providers, what we sometimes do is we avoid this topic. Why? This is like suicide all over again, right? If we don't ask about suicide, they they won't do it, right? Or if I ask about it, then they're going to do it. No, this is the same thing. If we don't ask them about their loss, if we don't ask them about their grief, we're further isolating them. A lot of them will describe as though they're standing in an island by themselves. 
and that nobody will talk to them, right? Everybody's avoiding them. And so by you going to them and saying, I'm acknowledging that you have a loss here, I'm acknowledging that there's a grieving process that needs to occur here, um, is the first step. The second thing is, is some of us may say, I don't know what to say. That's me. I don't know what to say. And so sometimes I'll say, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you, right? Or you can simply say, I'm so sorry that you're going through this, but I'm here for you and, I'm, and I care about you and I want to see if I can help you, right? It could be simply just sitting next to the patient and just quietly sitting there right next to them and letting them tell their story. There's research to show that patients, by just telling their stories, will, say, will, have, will, will experience a 30% reduction in their pain. Right? And so just sitting there and just giving them the opportunity to talk about their loss can be helpful. All right, so we're going to do a grief exercise. Now, before I do that, um, I need everybody to take out a piece of paper and a pen. So what I want you to do is I first want you to list three things, three possessions that you have that are very important to you. That could be your car. That could be your watch. That could be your Bible. Whatever it is, three possessions that you have that are very important to you. Next what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to write three things that you value highly in nature. So that could be the air that we breathe. It could be the water that we drink. It could be the animals in nature. Right? On the next three lines, I want you to consider important activities in your life. So it says things like work, hobbies, and leisure. I don't know about work. Um, so for me, it might be reading a good article or an interesting book, right? Or spending time with my family or going out with my friends, right? Those are leisure activities that I really enjoy. And then finally, on the last three lines, I want you to identify three people who are important to you. So this could be your parents, your grandparents. It could be your siblings. It could be your children. It could be your pets. Pets are also family. Now, as I read this exercise, I want you just to simply listen and then follow the instructions as I give them. Is everybody ready? Yeah? Okay. So it's a warm summer day, and you have worked hard and played hard all day long. You're feeling good about yourself and about life. You head back to your hotel room, and you decide to take a shower before heading to bed. And as you're trying yourself after you showered, you hear a pop in your back, and you try to stand, and it's painful. The fear about this pain begins to affect all areas of your life. You feel anxious and worried. The process has begun. It's time for you to give away something in your life. So go ahead 
and scratch one of the things that you wrote down on your list off of your list. Whichever one you'd like. For the next several months, you worry, and then you find yourself in the doctor's waiting room. You feel nervous. Your senses are heightened. You notice everything in the room. You tell yourself that you're making a big deal about nothing. Your heart is beating faster, and now the doctor is taking your history. And you wonder to yourself, why is he or she asking all of these questions? They start you on a new medication that has a potential to cause addiction. And after the exam, you get back into your car, drive home, and you realize that your family has become very helpful, almost too helpful, as a matter of fact. And you think a lot about it. What if this pain does not go away? Time is dragging slowly. Go ahead and scratch two things off of your list. It's been six months, and you've yet another monthly appointment to meet with the prescribing doctor, again to refill your medications. You notice the pain is still there, but you're able to function with the medications he's prescribed. The doctor is cautious about continuing to prescribe the medication and tells you you're going to need to start physical therapy. Fear strikes you deeper, and you worry about whether the doctor is going to stop prescribing the medication. Now scratch another thing off of your list. As you go to psychotherapy, your heart begins to beat faster, and your legs begin to feel like rubber. The therapist sits in a chair next to you, and the words you've dreaded to hear are finally spoken. Your pain is chronic and something you're going to need to learn to continue to manage. You can't remember what the therapist is saying in the next few minutes, but you hear the words exercise, non-opioid medications, and surgery stand out. Go ahead and scratch another thing off of your list. So you decide to go for the surgery that the neurosurgeon offered you a year ago. The surgery goes well, or at least that's what the doctor is saying, and he prescribes a mixture of medications and physical therapy and a proper course of action. You have a leave of absence from your work responsibilities, and the doctor won't be more specific about your recovery time. Money is a problem but it's a stress you hardly have time to think about with all the appointments, medications, adjusting to having good days and bad days. Things are different now, and it's hard for you to realize how much of your life has changed in just a few short months. Your life seems to be slipping away. Scratch two things off of your list. Several months pass, and you know somehow, deep inside, that you're not getting any better. One clue was that the surgeon discharged you from the clinic, and it will not continue prescribing the medication that you was prescribing. 
You're confined to your bed most of the time. The yard outside is full of weeds, and the early signs of winter are coming on. Your family and friends come around, but less often. Scratch another thing off of your list. Sometimes you're awake at night, wondering if you're dead or still alive. Life has lost all meaning. Life seems to be spinning out of control. Scratch one last thing off of your list. So the first thing is remember to breathe. Take a deep breath in. And with each breath you take, remember that you are alive and well. But the reason I put you through this exercise is because later on today or later on this week, I want you to kind of revisit the thoughts that you had, the emotions that you felt, the memories that came flooding through when we were talking or doing the exercise. And remember that when you're sitting with a patient who is in chronic pain, that they may be feeling exactly the way you're feeling right now or thinking the things that you're thinking right now or having the flood of memories coming to them just as you are right now. And remember that you need to live life to its fullest because we never know when it's going to be our last day, right? Now, we as providers not only need to acknowledge that there's grief that may be occurring with someone who has chronic pain, but we also need to assess their needs. So people fall somewhere in a continuum, right? But what we suspect or what we used to think was complicated grief is when people are grieving for more than 6 to 12 months. But it's more complicated than that, hence the word complicated grief, right? It's not only about time, but it's also whether they have manifestations of grief that are absent. It may be that they have these manifestations in extreme, they're extreme. Uh, they may be long, or they may become distorted in some way, right? Now, complicated grief can lead into depression. In 2013, the American Psychiatric Association redefined the way that we look at mental health in the uh, DSM-5. Um, when they did that, they redefined how we define uh, bereavement, but they also redefined how we define depression. These two things are now no longer mutually exclusive. Um, and they did this for a couple of reasons. One is, is to clarify in the time frame. They removed the implication that bereavement typically lasted only two months. Bereavement can last longer than that, right? Again, it's an individual experience. However, they also recognize that this is a severe psychosocial stressor that can precipitate a major depressive episode. They also underscored its genetic influence, and they also noted that the same psychological interventions and the same medications that we use for non-bereavement-type depression also work with bereavement. Um, and so what we know is that about 40%, no, 45% of people who have grief will go into a depressive state, and so they could benefit from depression treatment. You also, as a provider, have to be mindful of anniversary dates, and you also have to be mindful of holidays, right? Because those are going to be particularly hard for patients. 
Now, one of the things that we do in our clinic, in our pain clinic, is we use the cross-cutting symptom measure. Now, this is a measure we give to all the patients that come into our clinic. It's a, a free. I like free. Free is my friend. Um, and it is available through the DSM-5. You can get it online. Now, the reason why I like it so much is because it goes over 12 domains or 12 different possible psychiatric conditions. And it can be used as a screener. The one that is relevant to what we are talking today is the first two questions. And those two questions make up the PHQ-2. How many of you know about the PHQ-2? Okay, several of you, good. For those of you who do not know what the PHQ is, it's the Patient Health Questionnaire. It's two questions that we use to screen for depression. And the two questions are whether the person has little interest or pleasure in doing things and whether they've been feeling down, depressed, or hopeless within the last two weeks. If these two questions are endorsed, it then tells you that you need to spend a little bit more time evaluating the person because they potentially could have depression, right? But this can also be used for other conditions. So it's cross-cutting symptom measure. Now, if you've got some money on you and you can spend some money, you can use things like the Beck Depression Inventory, but that's going to cost you, right? You also need to be providing resources. You need to be aware of what type of support this patient has. So would, do they have a relationship with their family? Do they have friends? Do, are they part of a support group? Do they need to be connected to a spiritual leader? Or do they need a psychothera psychotherapist? Now, when I think of support groups, the first thing that comes to my head and the first thing that come, should come to your head is the American Chronic Pain Association. Everybody write that down. American Chronic Pain Association. American Chronic Pain Association. Why is that the first thing that comes to my head? Is for three reasons. The first is, is that they do three things really well for your patients. The first one is, is that when we provide education or when we refer patients to different types of treatment, we forget that they may, may not have the health literacy to understand what it is that you're talking about. And so, for example, if you think that cognitive behavioral therapy could be helpful for your patient, they can go on this website, look up cognitive behavioral therapy, and it will explain what that is in layman terms so that patient can understand. It's great. Number two, what they do really well is that if the patient signs up to their uh, mailing list, they will send them a letter in the uh, uh, newsletter in the mail every month or every quarter, uh, kind of highlighting different topics in pain. And then the third and most important and most relevant part that they do is that if your patient is looking for support, they will connect your patient to a local support for group that is free. Let me say that again. It is free, F-R-E-E, free. And if one does not exist, they will help create one with the patient. It is an amazing resource and a great support for your patients, the American Chronic Pain Association. The second thing we need to do is look into people's spirituality. Now, spirituality is an umbrella term. It, it covers a lot of other different practices, right? So it, it includes religion. But it also can be expressed in art, or it can be expressed in nature, or it could be traditional healers. So it could be a botanica, it could be a curandero or curandera, it could be a spiritista, a yerbero or yerbera, it could be a Native American healer, a medicine man, a shaman, or a sobrador. Those are all different practices 
of people use to express their spirituality. So asking your patient, how do you express your spirituality? I had a Native American who, a veteran who came into our clinic. He was Cherokee. And he had separated from his tribe for years. And so we talked to him about his tribe, his connection to the tribe, and he had no connection. Um, and wanted to reconnect and wanted to have that be part of his treatment. And so what did we do? We connected with the head of that tribe and they came over and met with him and became part of the treatment team, right? So don't forget about spirituality. What about psychotherapy? Well, first of all, we need to offer psychotherapy to our patients, right? Let them know that this is something that is available. You also don't want to be pushing psychotherapy on someone right after someone passed away, like the day after, right? You want to give them some time. You want them to be expressing some of this complicated grief before you start pushing psychotherapy on someone. But you can always let them know if this becomes complicated, if this is something that you need support for, there are psychotherapists, and here's who I know. Now, there's two major psychotherapies that we use. One is acceptance and commitment therapy, and the other one is cognitive behavioral therapy. So you're going to be hearing about those all week, and that's because those are the two main therapies that are out there for pain management. This is no different, no different when it comes to grief. Now, acceptance and commitment therapy makes sense as being probably the first choice because acceptance and commitment therapy is all about moving people towards that stage of acceptance, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to learn to accept. Now, it's a clinical behavioral analysis that uses acceptance and mindfulness-based strategies mixed with commitment and behavior change strategies to include, increase psychological inflexibility. So I don't know about you, but when I learned this, I was really confused because they use very flowery language to talk about very basic concepts. What is psychological inflexibility? What does that mean? We're stubborn. Who said that? Over here somewhere, right? We're stubborn creatures. It's resistance. It is because we are stubborn, it's because we are resistance that we have, we don't move towards acceptance. And so what acceptance and commitment therapy does is that we address this in three different major ways. One way is that we work on helping people become more open. And how we do that is by learning to accept, so using learning to accept, learning to accept, and you're learning people to diffuse or separate themselves from their brain, from their cognitions. The second thing that we do is that we help people become more present. And how do we do that? Is we do that by using things like mindfulness, you're going to hear about that later, and looking at the world or looking at pain not simply as a content, but also as context. Okay, that is probably the most difficult one of all of them, and, and the reason is, is because the name is really difficult. What they're trying to talk about here is perspective taking. It's looking at taking your pain from different perspectives and learning and gaining information from those perspectives and making decisions from them. That is how we're going to help people become more present. And then we're going to help them take more action. That is the third step. And how we're going to do that is by helping them identify what is valuable in their life and we're also going to help them come up with a committed action plan on how to do that. So again, we're going to help them to become more open, to be more present, and to take more 
action. So these are two resources that are out there. I am not getting any kickback for this. I am just telling you because these are really good resources. The first one is Joan Dahl. Joan Dahl, she's Scandinavian. I don't think she's here this weekend. Um, but she wrote a four-session protocol, two sessions of individual therapy, two sessions of group therapy. The one on the right is a resource that I really enjoy uh, introducing to people because when I often do this talk across the country, the first thing I usually hear is, this is great, but my patient can't afford to go to a therapist, or my therapist doesn't do this therapy, or you know, the insurance doesn't cover it. And I say, okay, I understand. What you can tell your patient to do then is to buy this book. Again, I'm not getting a kickback for this. But they did a study on this book. Johnson and colleagues did a study in this book. And what they found is that by patients simply filling out the book, saw an improvement in their experience of pain. And if that is what the experience of your patient is, then that tells me that they need to invest in therapy, right? That, that gives me further proof that going into psychotherapy may be the right choice for them. What about cognitive behavioral therapy? So cognitive behavioral therapy, um, you know, when you think of psychotherapy, there were three waves. The first wave was psychoanalysis, right? And that's what people think about when they think about going to therapy. They think that they're going to lay down on a couch and the therapist is going to be sitting behind them writing everything that they're saying, right? That's what people imagine therapy is like. That was psychoanalysis in its most crudest form, right? That was the first wave. The second wave was cognitive and the, and the behavioral therapist. There were two different camps. The behavioral therapists believe that it is the way that we behave that affects the way that we feel. And the cognitive therapists believe that it's the thinking, the way that we think, that affects the way that we feel. And then cognitive behavioral therapy is an integration of both of those camps, right? So cognitive behavioral therapy, what we're doing is we're addressing maladaptive thinking and maladaptive behaviors that are impacting the pain experience. Now, research has shown that this when you use cognitive behavioral therapy as part of grief therapy, it reduces pain and depression, patients reduce their uses of medications, and it reduces the number of healthcare visits that they have. And then the third wave that I forgot to talk about is the mindfulness-based therapies, and that's where acceptance and commitment therapy falls in. That's what we're in right now. That's the, we're in the renaissance of the mindfulness-based therapies at the moment. So this model is a little bit less complicated than the first one, isn't it? Now what we know about pain, physical pain, is that physical pain tends to affect the way that we think. Is that true or false? True or false? True. Don't fall asleep on me. We also know that pain tends to affect the way that people behave. True or false? True. And we also know that the way that we think affects the way that we behave. True or false? So if that is true, the opposite is true as well. It is a reciprocal relationship. And how we know that's the case is that the way that we behave affects the way that we think. True or false? So that, that means the way that we behave affects the way that we experience pain, and the way that we think affects the way that we experience pain. And how we're going to help patients to move towards that is by using the skills of cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, one of them... One of the skills is cognitive restructuring, right? And so one of the things that you often may hear from your patients is, this pain is going to kill me. 
right? Now, what a patient says, this pain is going to kill me. What I do is I say, all right, what evidence do you have that that is true? And I usually don't get an answer, right? Because there is no evidence. There is not one documented case in history of anybody who has died of pain. They have died with pain, but it was not the pain that killed them. And so there's more evidence in the contrary, which means that is a false statement. And so what we do is we teach patients how to change that statement to be more true. So what is a way that we could change that statement to be more true? Today is pretty difficult to deal with my pain. That's good. What if we made, that was a lot, that was a big change. It feels like my pain is going to kill me. By simply adding, it feels like, or I think it's going to kill me, by just adding those two words, you're changing the intensity of that statement. Do you see that? Yeah? Okay. Now, this is a manual. This is done by uh, John Otis. Again, he's not giving me a kickback. Uh, It's just a really good manual, Um, and it really explains how to use traditional cognitive behavioral therapy in the chronic pain population. Now, if you work in the VA, as I do, they have their own CBT-CP protocol, but I am not a fan, and here's why. The CPT-CP protocol that the VA pushes is flawed. And the reason it's flawed is because a year ago, I did a self-study of the pain clinic and the pain patients, and what I found was that the two complaints you are most likely to hear from your patients are anger and sleep. And those two things are removed from this protocol, and that's the CBTCP. So that's why I push this protocol more, is because it includes a session on anger management, and it includes a session on sleep hygiene, which is what your patients are going to want to need. They're going to want to hear about these things, right? Now, Otis also came out with a protocol that integrated cognitive processing therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. And why he did that is because when people suffer trauma, it is common for that trauma to co-occur. So our men and women in uniform who are returning from Iraq and Afghanistan are coming back with emotional trauma, but they are also coming back with physical trauma to their bodies. And those two things will mutually, uh, mutually maintain each other, meaning that when they feel the physical pain, it reminds them of the emotional trauma. When they have the emotional pain, it, it triggers the physical trauma, right? I can, that makes sense. But here is the exciting thing is that when you have a patient who has a trauma that is unrelated to their physical pain, it still works. And here's the reason why it still works. It's because it addresses our avoidance. We tend to avoid things that are uncomfortable. My second talk today, this afternoon, is going to be on catastrophic thinking and fear avoidance. This is where the problem is, is that we continue to avoid the things that are uncomfortable for us. And it is every moment that you avoid something that is uncomfortable to you, you're adding another moment of that discomfort. And so cognitive processing therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy integrated could be a one way of addressing that relationship, whether the trauma is from the same incident or from a different incident. You also want to think about complementary and integrative health, right? This is when you can introduce things like yoga, tai chi, 
uh, massage therapy. You also want to introduce things like art therapy and music therapy because these have been shown to be helpful for people when they're going through the grieving process. So what I did is I went online and I looked for three pieces of art that had to do with grief. But had I not told you that these were about grief, what does it look like? It looks like pain. And so again, this is why this is important for us to acknowledge. We need to acknowledge that this is not only chronic pain, but it also can be grief. And so in conclusion, in theory, after a loss, patients are going to begin to live their fullest lives, um, but not until they've be, uh, had enough time to grieve. Again, grief is a personal experience. Number two, it's a multifaceted response that may occur when someone suffers from chronic pain. The person may also experience physical, cognitive, behavioral, social, and philosophical losses. And that your role as a practitioner is to first acknowledge that grief and pain can coexist, but also acknowledge what is happening in the patient's life in terms of their losses, and then also getting them, uh, assessing their needs and providing them with resources. And if you liked my talk, you can visit my website or my Twitter or my uh, Facebook. Any questions? Yes. first time that, you know, someone has acknowledged their loss and their grief, how do you, uh, how do you know when it's time to offer all of these therapies? Because I'm gun-ho, I'm like, let's get you started, but maybe they're not, not on ready. the same track right. as me. So a uh, great question. The question was, oftentimes she'll offer grief when she acknowledges it and when her patients, but they're not ready at that moment. And so what do you do in those situations? The first thing is to be there. Just be there for them and meet them where they're at, right? And then what I usually do is I say, when you're ready, I have other resources available for you. And maybe the next time they visit you, you can kind of touch base and say, hey, again, we avoid, right? We don't want to ask because if we ask, they may start grieving again. No, no, no. It's okay. You can ask and say, the last time I saw you, you had lost your loved one. How are you doing? Do you need resources? It's just to re readdress it in the next follow-up visit, right? Because what we tend to do is, if they don't say anything, we kind of just move on, right? Yes. In pain, uh, psych, it's so, so difficult. So it's really hard, and I was prepared for this question because I knew someone was going to ask. So there's a couple of resources. The first resource is, um, believe it or not, Psychology Today. If you go to the Psychology Today website, you can put in your zip code and you can put in what type of counseling you're looking for. So you could write chronic pain or you could write grief and it will show you the, the, the providers that are offering that. It will also tell you if they're taking patients and it will also take, uh, tell you what insurance they take. That's probably the most exhaustive resource, right? But then you can go to the specific um, organizations, right? So the Society for Behavioral Medicine. You can also go to the um, board certification website and look at who's been board certified in clinical health psychology. And they could be a good resource for pain management as well.
Any other questions? All right, I expect all of you guys to come to the chronic pain uh, catastrophizing talk this afternoon. Uh, Therapy for somebody who has had a recent traumatic event like a car accident or, or something like that as something far down the way because I just had a recent patient that uh, was in a car accident and the other person died um, and the uh, person didn't have any insurance and the person's like left without her job now so it's, it's extremely complicated but now she's also afraid to go out driving and is afraid of cars and and so it's pretty complicated. So on the next talk, again, the one this afternoon, we talk about graded exposure, which is probably what I would do. So graded exposure might be um, first talking about getting in a car and kind of talking her, uh, ta her talking you through her driving, um, then actually maybe going to a car lot and just having her sit in a car, then you know, progressing to then finally going and driving. Because then you'll be able to see how, the tolerance, how much they can, and how much time they may need. Yeah. All right, thank you, everybody.